Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 2, 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. So, a woman is waving. Why? Why is, why is a woman waving? It's hard to say, isn't it? Um, she could be waving because she's just met a friend. She could be waving because she's hailing a taxi. Or maybe she's in the window of a burning building. But it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, without a little more information, it's, it's sort of hard to know why she's waving. You need context. And every story needs context. Context is what helps us to make sense of what's going on. And all of us here in this room have a context for our lives. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, everybody has a context, a reason, a way of sorting out why we're here and, 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 and where this all came from. Everyone has a context. The Bible this morning gives us a context, the true context. It's uh, an amazing story about about why we're here and and how we got here. Hey, we've been we've been uh, 
looking at the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, for a couple of weeks. And if you remember, in the first week of creation, God made the world. And then on the sixth day, God made human beings in his image. In his image, in his likeness, he made the male and female. And he said to them, be fruitful and, and inhabit, take over the earth, take over be fruitful and, so, and have babies <laughs> and rule over the earth and, and, and have dominion and take care of this world. And this morning, as we go to this chapter, chapter two, we're going to see God sort of zoom in uh, on chapter two. In chapter one, we're seeing the big picture. It's sort of like uh, Google Earth. How many of you have ever gone on Google Earth? You open it up, and all you see is you see the, the, the planet Earth, and then you type in your destination, and it zooms into the place you want to go. And that's what's happening here in chapter two. We're zooming in on day six, and we're seeing what God creates. And we're going to see God create two things that are so important, so essential for the flourishing of this world that God has created. One is work, and the other is relationship. Those are two pretty big topics to get through in one sermon, but I'm going to try. And uh, they may seem like distinct and separate ideas, but they're actually really tightly woven together. And what I want you to see this morning is, is how God created the world and how he created us to work and, and have relationship so that this world could be everything that God wanted it to be, okay? So first, we're going to see God create work. Now, if you are paying really close attention to the opening verses, five, four, five, six, and on, uh, you would have noticed what seems to be a contradiction. Because here we are on day six, right? And it says that, that no shrub, no plant had, had sprung up from the earth. But we know from chapter one that God made plants first on day three, and then humans on day six. So what gives? Well, remember, we're zooming in. He's not talking about the entire planet. He's zooming in to a specific place on the face of the earth, a place called Eden, which means beautiful, pleasurable, awesome. And here we are in this area, this very specific area on day six. And what God does is this. There is no one to work the ground in this place because there was no water, there was no man, there was no woman, there was nothing. So here's what God does. He, he creates man. He creates man from the dust of the earth. Now, I wasn't there, obviously. I don't know what that looked like. But in my mind's eye, I, I see God in the mud, in the clay, forming this guy's body. And then in, in what's an incredibly warm and intimate and powerful word, it says that he breathed into this man's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Not two parts, body and soul, but a unity. Man, human being, Adam, made in God's image. And then God takes this man, this main man named Adam, he takes him from the region of Eden and puts him into a garden, a garden that he had planted. How many of you like planting 
How many of you like gardens? No, you, you don't. Oh, you do. Yes, okay. Well, here we are, chapter 2. God plants a garden. And it's an amazing garden. It's got everything in it. It's got trees. It's got fruit trees. And it's got a river running through it that divides into four headwaters. And, and I don't remember the names of the rivers, but they flowed out of this area. Just an idyllic, beautiful place. And God puts this man there to work. It says, I want you to like till and care for the land. I want you to, to cultivate it. I, I want you to take care of it. And so in the opening verses, the very opening verses of Genesis, there's no fall yet. Right in the opening verses of Genesis, we see God creating work. Now, I want to say a few things. One is this. Did you know that that work is good? It's good. It may not feel that way. How many of you don't feel like your work is good? Okay. Try that again. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it doesn't feel that good. But you know what? When God created human beings, he, he, he made us to work. And work is good. He could have created a world where everything was sort of already done, already pre-made. And Adam could have just like walked around naked, you know, and, and eaten fruit and then fallen asleep and lounged around. But he didn't do that. He actually, he said, I want you to work. I want you to work. Work is good. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is not a means to an end. Work isn't, you know, the thing that you've got to do before you start living. No, 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 no. It's an essential part of what it means to be a human being. God made human beings to work, you see. So work is good. It's very good. And it's important. It's so important. The work you do is important. I, I don't know what he would have done, really, in that garden. I, I'm not a gardener. I don't know much about gardening. I have some ideas. But I don't know a lot. I would imagine he would have dug up the earth, maybe planted some seeds, would have watered them. He would have proved. I mean, there would have been all kinds of work, all kinds of work for him to do. This is what I know. Adam would have taken all of that pre-existing material, rearranged it into a way that was just brimming with possibility and purpose for the good and flourishing of this world. That's what work is. And it's what your work is. Whether that pre-existing material is physical or whether it's conceptual, we're, we're just rearranging um, the furniture, so to speak, existing material in a way that calls out its potential for the good and the flourishing of this world that God's put us in. Now get this. God could have made this world. He could have made it like pre-made, everything in its place, no work for us to do, just lounge, but he didn't. And this is crazy. Here's how God cared or decided to care for his world. He said, I'm going to put human beings on this planet. And, and, and I will care through human beings. I will care through your care. That is a wild concept that God would, would just pay us the privilege and, uh, and, 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 and give us this opportunity to care for the world that he made. Would you do that? Would you trust your creation into the hands of people God does? It's amazing. You know, Mike, how many of you have ever been to the Sistine Chapel? Oh, yeah? And how many of you have seen that ceiling? I haven't, but it's, you know, it's amazing. 
Do you know who painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling? If you're saying Michelangelo, you're wrong. Okay, he was the, the principal painter. But there were other people who helped to paint that ceiling. He, he subbed out a lot of that work to different people. His name was on it. He was in charge of it. He was responsible. And yet he employed all kinds of people to, to finish that ceiling. And it is amazing, is it not, that God would choose to care for this world in such a way that he would make you and put you in the domain that he has put you to care for this world, to rearrange all of this pre-existing material, whether conceptual or physical, to call out its promise and all for the good and the flourishing of society. Amazing. Martin Luther, not Junior, uh, but Martin Luther, the one who was born in, I think it was like 1493, died in 46, so a while ago, has been attributed as, as one of the guys who just did so much to dismantle the false division between the secular and the sacred. Up until that time in the Middle Ages, the people who did God's work were the priests and the monks. But Martin Luther came along and said, no, 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 no. Anybody who works is doing the work of God. And that's true whether you're a parent or a painter or a, a poet or a, a paralegal or I'm running out of peace, a, a what? A, a what? A, a, okay, there you go. It's, thank you. It's true of no matter who you are, that God has put you in that domain. And God is caring for the world through your care. Isn't that incredible? Your work is important. It is. And it's got incredible dignity. Listen, I know we live in a culture with a pecking order. And you know as well as I do, there are jobs, and you know which jobs we put on that ladder, and we say this ladder, this job is more important than other jobs, right? But I just want to call to your attention what the first job was. It was a manual labor job. God called this man into a garden to get dirt under his fingernails. He called him to work the earth. Every, every job, I'm not talking about criminal jobs. I'm talking about every job has dignity. Every job has dignity. I think we all know, though, that the world that we live in and the work that we have doesn't exactly look like Genesis chapter 2, right? It doesn't. And the reason for that, and we'll see this more next week, is that something happened. A fall happened. Sin entered the world. And now work is difficult. Now we, now we work, and we work in very weird and broken ways. But here's the truth, and this is, hear this, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son into this world, and his son worked, and he did the work of redemption all the way to a cross, all the way to take your sins on himself. And he did that to give you, one, a new identity. And that has huge importance when you think about the way that you work, right? Because a lot of people are working to get a sense of value and a sense of identity. And I'm not going to stand here and say that work doesn't have the power to like, significantly rewire a person. It's important. And it's hard when we're not working. It's very hard. And it should be that way. It's not normal. We should be working. We were made to work. But here's the thing. 
and this is what I've seen, and here's what I've experienced. If we're trying to get our identity from our work, it's going to be a roller coaster ride emotionally. Because what happens when you succeed? What happens when you fail? If we succeed, it'll go to our head, someone said, and if we fail, it goes to our hearts. And it's up and down and up and down, and people are a means to an end. And that end is whatever is going to make you feel better about yourself. Well, listen, the gospel says this. Jesus worked for your redemption. He worked to give you a new identity, a new image. And and your value before God doesn't depend on your work, whether you do well or you don't, but upon the one who worked for your salvation. And when that gets into your heart, and I mean deep down into your heart, it will free you up to actually serve people in this world and to make this world a place that is beautiful and brimming with potential, okay? But it's more than that because the gospel actually, it kind of reconfigures our moral compass. Uh, we're not doing things to just get, all right? We're, we're not just trying to, we're, we're not cutting corners to like, make the margin or the profit. We're not, we're not that way because we live before the face of God, a God who loves us and sent his son for us. And that means this. It means that we work with integrity. It means we work hard, but we work with integrity before a God who sees us and knows us and loves us. You see that? It means that we're honest. We're transparent. We won't cut corners. We won't lie, cheat, and steal. But what we will do is this. We will live out our Christian faith before a watching world, and we will do so for its flourishing. And so really the gospel changes everything when it comes to our work. Now, there was a lot of work to do in this garden. A lot of work to do in the world. God knew it. And God, God looks at this man. And he says, it is not good. It is not good that man is alone. He doesn't say lonely. He says alone. Adam was alone. I don't think he knew he was alone. I don't think he felt lonely. But he didn't know he was alone. And God said, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going, I'm, going to, I'm going to fix this because something here is not good. Remember Tove from week one? Tove is good. And Tove can mean that which is beneficial. Not just that, but beautiful, but it's beneficial. So something was missing that was going to make it beneficial for life in this new world. And God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for the man. A helper. A helper. And by the way, I looked this up. Did you know that that word helper is used in the Old Testament to describe God? It's a helper who is suitable for Adam. And literally that word means one who stands opposite you. One who looks you in the eyes. One, it's like a mirror. But there's a difference. There's similarity. And yet there's this wild and crazy and amazing difference. And God said, I'm going to make a counterpart. I'm going to make somebody comparable or, or complementary, rather, for this man. So he can be fruitful. So they can be fruitful. So that they can watch over and care for the world. That I can care through them, do you see? 
And so here's how he did it. And it's amazing. God brings all of the animals to Adam. I don't know how many there were in that day. I think there were a lot less than today. And as the animals come, Adam is looking at them scientifically. And Adam realizes something. It dawns on him that for every zebra, let's say, I don't know what they were back then, there was a counterpart. There was another one that was similar and yet different. And after a while, the penny drops for Adam and he gets it. He understands now for the first time that he's alone. And then here's what God does. God puts him into a a deep sleep. He puts him into a deep sleep and then he opens up his side and he removes a rib from Adam. It's amazing to me that he doesn't make her the way that he made Adam from the dust of the ground. He makes her from his rib. He doesn't make her from his, her, uh, his cranium, you know, to be over him, or from his feet to be under him, but from his side, to be with him, to be equal, to walk side by side. And then he wakes him up, and he brings, he brings this woman to Adam. And Adam looks at her, and our translation says something like, and now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's okay. That's an okay translation. The KJV is better, the Kieran James version. It should read something like this. Finally, finally, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha because she was taken out of man, Ish. Amazing. For the first time, relationship. For the first time, God has done something to make sure that this world will be able to continue and that it will flourish. I could uh, go in so many directions right now when it comes to relationship. And uh, I could talk about marriage for a bit. Good. And I could even spend some time talking to you gentlemen, you know, in a very direct way, in an encouraging way, and and, and, and kind of work out, tease out what it means to to look at your wife and to look at her and and walk with her in a way that kind of captures that idea finally. Right? Could do that. Or we could talk about gender. That's kind of relevant, isn't it? It's a bit of a hot-button topic, mind you. I mean, I, I could talk to you about that. I, I, could, I could talk to you maybe about when and why we separated gender from sex. I could do that. Or maybe we could talk about the differences between men and women. How many of you read the book by John? Oh, what was his name? Gary. Sorry? Yes. Uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. A hugely influential book that came out in the 90s that has shaped the way that many in our culture think about 
gender and the differences between men and women. And I, I could cite for you the things he says in the book that, that men are more, um, I don't know, we, we tend to process internally, women process uh, verbally, that, that men like to um, have things, solutions and women just want to be heard. And I could you know, talk about these things and I could show you that these really aren't anything that lines up with scripture. They're not gender differences, they're more stereotypes. Talk about that. I think I want to talk about gender. And I I think I want to talk about gender from a different angle. (laughs) Okay? I uh, I think I'd like to talk to those of you this morning who are here with us and uh, where you don't feel at home in your body. And you know what was written on your birth certificate or or the doctor's office, male or female, but but you don't feel at home in your body. And every month is a, a reminder to you, a painful reminder, that your experience is that you don't feel at home in your body. And every time you hear ideas that are thrown around, stereotypes, it's a reminder to you that you're not at home in your body. That's your experience. I guess what I want to say is, I, I mean, I would love to know what that's like for you. I would love to know what it's like for you to live in a body that does not feel like your home. And I think I would also want you to know that Jesus loves you. And I would want you to know that he accepts you just as you are. And he doesn't expect you to change or get over whatever it is, you know, that just is just gripping your heart with pain as you live in a very confusing world. I think I would also want to say to the church What does it mean to be a church where people can find a place in this body when they don't feel at home in their own bodies? And and could we be the kind of community that loves and accepts people just as they are, wherever they are? I guess what I'm asking is could we love people all people with the love of Jesus Christ. Because, you know, when I, when I look at Jesus Christ and I see him moving, you know, it was often the people that were on the fringe and on the outside, the people that were cast away. That's who he tended to gravitate towards. And he had some very hard things to say to the religious leaders of the day who had a lot to say about other people but kept their distance from those people. And I wonder where today Jesus would be mixing it up. And we might be surprised. Back in 97, I was a younger man, obviously. 
and I was down in Syracuse, New York. It was a, I was doing a pastoral internship. Someone said I should go down there and get some of these uh, rough edges sanded off, learn how to be a pastor, plant churches. And remember uh, one evening I was in an elders meeting, which is the leadership of the church. And around that time, the promise keepers, I don't know if you've ever heard of the promise keepers, had rolled into town. And, and uh, a woman named Rosaria, who was a prof at the University of Syracuse, a woman that worked in the, the women's um, studies, she um, said that she identified as a lesbian. Um, her thing was queer theology. She had written a scathing review of the promise keepers. And uh, the men in that room caught wind of this and I remember they said we, we got to write, we got to print something. We got to denounce this. And my pastor Ken and my mentor said let's, let's do something different. <laughs> Shall we? And here's what he said, look it, I'm just going to invite her over to uh, my house to have coffee with my wife Floyd. And so I don't know how it worked but they did and she came over. And it really began a very unlikely friendship. I mean, my mentor, Ken, was just pretty straight-laced. He was pretty conservative. Genesis chapter 2, I mean, he just, no problems with that. Male, female, one man, one woman in marriage, right? And she was not that. But they began this, this unlikely friendship. And I think for Rosaria, I know for Rosaria, it was a real, it was hard for her to understand a category where, okay, we don't agree, but I love you, right? We, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but I accept you just as you are. And I'm not going to ask you to change before I love and accept you. And I think for Rosaria, what was happening was she was encountering the grace of God. A grace that comes to us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He accepted us just as we were. So broken and flawed. Loving us enough to change us, but hear this, accepting us. And I think we get it all wrong in our culture where we ask people to change before we will love and accept them. And I will only love and accept you if you're like me. But what about people who aren't like you? And what about people who aren't at home in their bodies? And what about people who would not identify with you know, either male or female, but with both or neither? And could they have a place here in our community where they are loved and accepted as much as you are? We need a context, friends, a context for our lives. And the great context is this. God made this world. It's broken. And we'll see why next week. But everything is broken, and all of our genders are broken. All of them. But this is what we know. That God, in pursuit of his creatures, to reclaim them, 
came and cared for them all the way to a cross, you to a cross, to bring you to himself so that you and I might care for the world that he's put us in. And he has put us here, friends. And here is the place where, like Rosaria, we love people. And we get to know them. And we befriend them, regardless of their choices. And regardless of what they choose regarding God, we will love you and we will befriend you. And you will have a home and a place here in our midst. And our prayer is that like Rosaria, that that will be a category that blows their minds and a category that introduces them to the deep love of Jesus Christ, a Savior who loved us and loved us enough to come and save us. So that's the context, friends. Let's keep that great context in mind as we serve and love this world that God's put us in. As you serve and love him in the domain that God has placed you. And our prayer is that God would just be so glorified and his care so evident in our midst. And that all praise and all glory would go to him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we worship and praise you because you're God and because you made us. And you made us, Father, to work and to have relationship, to care for this world that you've put us in. And Father, it's amazing that you kind of hide behind us and you work through us to care for the world and the people in it. We want, Father, to be your eyes and your smile, your hands and your feet and your heart. In a world, Father, that is very broken and in many ways has fallen apart. And uh, we just want to be that community, Father. We want to be a community, Father, that... uh, doesn't conform to the ways of this world, but is transformed by the renewing of your gospel. And that that gospel will so penetrate and reshape our hearts that people will see that you are holy, but that you are a loving, holy God. We pray, Father, for a safe place. Father, we pray that people would know that you are the safest place in the universe in Christ. And we pray, Father, that many here and many outside these doors would encounter that grace and encounter it through us as we work, as we play, and as we have relationship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.